0: Both Iceland and Ireland are countries of storytellers rich in folklore, myth and oral traditions and it is intriguing to see the connections and explore the influences of the Gaelic settlers who were often brought to Iceland by the Norwegian Vikings as slaves. And to wonder about the influences of those mothers coming from Ireland and Scotland who perhaps soothed their children with tales of pukas, fairies and the Aishi, the otherworldly race of supernatural spirits. Now Dr Terry Gunnell is someone immersed in folk tradition. His own roots are in Brighton in England and he has a PhD in Icelandic studies from Leeds University but today he's Professor of Folkloristics at Reykjavik's University of Iceland and Terry's a leading voice on the folk traditions, customs and beliefs of Iceland. I'm Helen Shaw, and this is Mother's Blood, Sister's Songs, the story of how the genetics of Iceland reveals its Gaelic roots. So to explore this a little bit further, Linda Buckley and myself sat down with Terry Gunnell in his Reykjavik office, where a couple of hurley sticks greeted us propped against the
1: door. My name's Terry Gunnell, Professor of Folkloristics at University of Iceland.
2: So Terry, you came from England to Iceland. I just wonder what led you to be fascinated by Norse mythology and Icelandic culture?
1: As a child you grew up with stories of King Alfred versus the Vikings, I suppose, at the beginning. But especially, I I just got more and more interested in the Scandinavian countries who are going to work in Norway initially, my wife's Icelandic. When you fall in love with Scandinavia in general, both as a a lady from Nordic countries and then also um, going regularly to Scandinavia, you want to go back into the beginnings of it. So so, um, that's something I've been doing ever since I went there first.
2: And have you seen traces of connection between Gaelic folktales and Icelandic in terms of themes of... Hidden people, puka, fairies, and sometimes they're not always such positive creatures.
1: Mm-hmm. And most definitely, you can, you've, you've got a number of traces running through there. Of course, since the Gaelic people were largely slaves, then there was, a, there was a move to shut down the language and things of that kind for fear of, I suppose, slave rebellion of one kind or another. But at the same time, you've got the slaves, the wives, because it's not just slaves, it's, it's wives as well, and and other people who become friends. The, especially the slaves are bringing the children up, so they're passing on their stories and their beliefs almost, um, almost under the fence in some way or other. So you find definitely a number of traces of these stories within the sagas. You don't have full Gallic stories within the sagas, but you have motifs. And especially the motif, for example, of Kahulan, um, for example, and you see that in Eil Saga when Eil loses it. Um, you have motifs which come up twice at least: the story of the ball game, which comes at the beginning of Eil Saga, and also Kalnasinga Saga, and certainly Kalnasinga Saga, which is set just across the fjord here. That has a number of. Irish motives to it. So the ball game is something you find in stories of Finn McCool and, and uh, other stories of that kind. And certainly, even if we're just touching on the ball game, the sport of knatlekut that you get regularly in the sagas, to my mind, as I've written elsewhere, is based on hurling. It's the same sort of descriptions of, of violence, of people being carried off. You don't find it in Norway, for example. The, the Scandinavian sport seems to have been more wrestling and things of that kind. But hurling is is certainly very, very close to what we have in Knaatlekur. Other motives, certainly in, in terms of beliefs, we have um, in, in Book, the book of the settlements, you have um, the story of the water horse. There's a man who, who needs help with his farm and this horse comes out of a lake and he takes on the horse as a horse as a workhorse. And then the horse goes back into the water afterwards. That's a a story that you, you find stories about water horses in Scandinavia, but they're very different. They tend then to, to be of children going on the back of a horse, which goes into a lake and then takes tries to take children with it. The idea of the workhorse, of course, we get that in the story of Cahulin and the, the the chariot horse that he has. So this is clearly a, another sign of, of Irish-Scottish stories and motifs which are coming to Iceland from an early point. You have also the story of the, of the, of the three laughs of the, of the Marmenitl or Marbenditl. You have that also in Ireland, with the story of the leprechaun, for example. On the other hand, a number of things don't come across. But you do certainly have stories to do with the hidden people. Right across Scandinavia, you certainly have stories of that sort of being. And the word that's used for them at the time of settlement is, is the um, Landviter or the land spirits. The word elves at the time of settlement seems to refer much more to a sort of Tolkien-like elf, which is a half-godlike being. Nonetheless, when they come to Iceland, it's very clear from a number of accounts that people believe in the land spirits. One of the laws tells people they have to take the front of the heads off their ships before coming to the country, fear of frightening away the spirits. Now certainly any of the Irish who came here, or Scottish that came here, would, would have also believed in... Spirits of that kind. And the difference that you have in Icelandic belief to say Norwegian belief they both use the word "huldra or the hidden ones, which is really it's a way of describing them a little bit like the good people of little people, um, rather than naming them. It's a the description of them. The difference between Iceland and Norway is that in Norway, they tend to be what's called the underjordisk, the underground people. In Iceland, they're never under the ground, under your feet. they're up in the hills which again is very, very very similar to what we have in Ireland, for example. Of course, they go under the ground there as well, but more going up to the fairy forts and places of this kind. Another thing that does also live on here is the idea of certain spots that you mustn't touch on a farm or in, in, in a local area. People used to look for connections to Scandinavia, and certainly we have ideas in Scandinavia of not touching a grave mound as a, as a particular, if anything, falls off the tree that's on the grave mound or something, you mustn't touch it. But if you look further, you find exactly the same sort of ideas in Scotland, places on a farm that stones or offerings would be left out. Then you have in Ireland, for example, the fairy Forts, which you find anywhere in the west of Ireland. As you drive around, you see areas up in the peat that, that just nobody will go to in the evenings. Again, this is something that would have been brought to Iceland from abroad and could just as easily have come would have come certainly with, with the Irish and Scottish people as it would have done with the Scandinavians at that time.
2: And do we also see connection in folk song?
1: The degree of bilingualism to a certain extent that people would have come up through people living in areas like, like this in Ireland. They're going to have come into contact with music, for example, and certainly poetry. And of course, poetry isn't just words, uh, as anybody knows from the oral tradition, poetry is music as well and rhythms and things of that kind. So certainly that element of poets as performers um, would certainly have, have been recognized there and in Scandinavia as well. But it is very interesting that the areas in which we find some of the most famous poets in Iceland are those areas where the, we find the largest number of sort of Gaelic settlers which is around the, the west, southwest of, of Iceland. And people have tried to connect this uh, certain metres of poetry here to Irish metres as well.
2: I just wanted to ask you about um, the sonic qualities of some of this poetry because it seems as though it's about creation of atmosphere. It's not just about the meaning. It's actually about the sounds of the words themselves and what they might evoke.
1: And most definitely. it's is something... That, it's part of the problem to a certain extent that academia is based on words and writing and and uh, we don't tend to tend to look beyond that into the element of performance which I teach here too and my backgrounds in drama and, and right from the beginning I was looking at the epic poems and how as a performer can I perform them without stepping into drama for example And certainly I think if you take a poem like Verlusbau the um, prophecy of the CRS, when I was looking at that, and when you read it out loud you start realizing very quickly that whoever's composed this poem has got a strong sense of sound and they're choosing sound to go along with actions and activities. Like for example, if I can try and remember this correctly, sort of um, the beginning of the poem, where well, as the world has not yet been created, there's nothing there. Sort of you can hear the age of waves, the, the the choice of the s sounds. There's not a single hard sound in there. If you look later on in the poem at at um, Ragnarok, for example, then the sounds are completely different. That's something like this. Again, if I can remember the words offhand. And then you've got, um, within that is describing battles at the end of the world. You've got weapon against weapon clashing, you've got growls, you've got screaming, you've got a cacophony of sound. There's another one which talks about the wolf, the wolves uh, that attack the world at the end. And again, you can hear the, the sound of the wolf in it sort of. Um, and again, you have the growl coming all the way through. Other strophes have building, which is, sounds like building sounds. So whoever's doing these poems is certainly considering sound. Icelandic in later times, the the vowels would have been um, slightly shorter, but the consonants would have been the same, this, these hard sounds. So I think rhythms, choice of sound to fit images that you're creating, and along with that, it's almost, a Völusbál is like a, a PowerPoint show of images which flash faster and faster which would have been um, come up in the minds of, of, of the audiences. So to my mind, certainly, the, these these poets, who I think one good way to get a hold to shut up when you're not have people throwing bones at you, is to um, underline your connections, for example, to the god Odin, as much as anything else. You're a traveler like he is, you come from outside like he does, and you speak the language of Odin as well. So a little bit like fiddle players in, in Norway, who would say that they learnt their art from the waterfall and the waterfall man, the, the Fossegrimen, the poet can say I learnt my art from Odin, out in nature somewhere and we certainly have at least a couple of motives here and there which suggest people learning their art from nature like the fiddle players in Norway later on as soon as they enter the poem then they're taking um, the whole atmosphere in the room to a different space it, it, it's the language of the gods it's a language you don't mess with because these guys are also seen as being a little bit like, a, like an island. Buoncrust has written about the, the, the power poets who were magi- semi-magicians because they have the, have the ability to create this, these chants that everybody will remember but also things that can change things. So the poet, a little bit like an Ireland again, is, is a semi-magician and you don't mess with him.
2: And why do you think it's important for us to tell our stories upon arriving to a new land? Is it a sense of mapping ourselves onto the landscape?
1: It's definitely the thing that's special about Iceland and the Faroe Islands, of course, is that there was nobody here except for a, a few slightly lost puzzled uh, hermits who were enjoying themselves in peace until the Vikings started coming along. Yeah, this, this was a land which, which had no maps. It had nothing. And, th- and, and the people coming here had never encountered anything of that kind. When you're coming here, first of all, you have where do you bury your dead? At home, you've got graveyards which have been going from the Bronze Age. At home, you know where to go out, you know where the, the hidden people live, the spirits of the land live. When you come here, where, where, where do you go? Where do the dead go? What language do you use with this land? It smells different, it bubbles differently to the land at home. So it's a pretty frightening space. And I find what's particularly interesting here is that you've got to create sacredness, sacred spaces. A little bit like I mentioned earlier on about the places on the farm you don't touch, that you maybe leave things out for the spirits. So yes, yeah, definitely, But you're coming here, you're mapping out the landscape. And one way of mapping out a landscape is by telling stories about it. I talk about um, legends that are sort of implicit legends that, that, that somebody says, oh, and that's, that, that place over there is a, it's, it's an enchanted spot. And you say, why? Well, things happen there. Like what? And then it, you get the story about it, which will explain exactly what's happened, or several stories. So merely the statement that that, that this place has a particular name is a, almost an implicit story. It asks for explanation. So stories, uh, I've described as being a sort of... Um, A map of not only landscape, it tells you where things happen. It gives a a new dimension to the landscape. It it turns it from being a geological happening to something that's got history, that's got background, that's got different dimensions to it. Some places are more magical, some aren't. Like we know anywhere that we go, just going back to our schools, the staff room, for example, was a place you didn't wander into as a student. Girls' toilets, boys' toilets, changing rooms, the, the whole place is marked out. And and the same as with the landscape, partly what will happen to you if you go to particular areas. The stories will give that, will map out the landscape in a new way. Stories like this will also tell you how to behave. They're maps of ethical behavior. What you do at particular times, what you don't do, where you go, how you go, the respect you should show to places and other people. So yeah, stories, it's a bit like a map being placed on top of the landscape. one thing about Iceland that is again different to Britain what, what, England where I come from initially is that you say you say I'm a poet in Brighton for example and you're like, yeah okay <laughs> it, doesn't have a, it doesn't have a lot of effect in Iceland as an island to a certain extent while well, neither country has a lot of respect for anybody who tries to act like a star be it Bono or be it Sinead or anybody of this kind you, you don't do it same with Iceland but at the same time, there is this respect for the man or woman who has the power of creation and language. Coming back to people like Oscar Wilde or so other people of this kind, Brandon Behan or, or Samuel Beckett, uh, Joyce. These are people who other people respect because of their power with words and, and the artistic creations that that they make. J.M. Singh, another one in, in, in Ireland, and in Yeats. The whole Celtic Celtic Twilight element of that of that, that period. So certainly the the poets are seen as some but somebody, greater, a little bit like artists in general, can't really comment on on the sort of element of of sound directly. But it's 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 the the person who has power with words, bringing us back again to things that words can do. They can make and break politicians. They can do all sorts of things of this kind. But uh, a tone sculpt is is coming back than to somebody who's shaping sound into a particular shape and a particular pattern with particular rhythms.
0: And that's Professor Terry Gunnell at the University of Iceland in Reykjavik. Now I've added some links to Terry's own work and research and a video from a presentation he made on this subject to our website mothersbloodsistersongs.com. Thanks for listening.